All right, well, we're still in Ezekiel chapter 1. We will finish the chapter here tonight and look at the vision that had occurred with the with the uh, four living creatures. But some of the uh, most response I got from the first week was a lot of the history, how that was helping. And I did have some charts I was going to try and bring up here for you, but uh, didn't get those those ready. But I want to give you a little bit more of the history that what was going on here leading up to the time of Ezekiel and including the, the time of Ezekiel. Now, there's um, a couple of uh, timelines if, uh, that I looked up. Uh, one I quoted from you last time that, that uh, Jeremiah, his ministry was actually longer than, than that of Ezekiel. But I've looked at some other ones and a lot of them have Jeremiah's ministry ending during the time of Ezekiel. So um, I didn't get to go through all the uh, historians and find out what they had to comment about it. So just know that there's a, a few schools of thought out there as to when Jeremiah actually quit being in ministry or had uh, had died. So just want to let you know about that. Daniel, though, kind of uh, uh, he was the he was the long one. He reigned longer or reigned. He was a prophet <laughs> longer than all of them were, and it was quite a quite a good bit of time. But if you go up on Google or a search engine of of such things and do a search for a timeline, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you'll come up with some things that will probably give you some, some help on, on that to, to see the visual picture of it. But here's some uh, history, the historical background to Ezekiel. If we go back to the time of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah died in 687 B.C. The destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon was in 587 B.C., exactly 100 years later. The, um, and what had happened prior to 687 B.C. was that, you remember, remember this character from Scripture, uh, Shalmaneser? He was the king of Assyria. He had invaded the northern tribes of Israel in 722 when King Hosea had refused to pay him tribute. And the ten northern tribes were taken captive by Assyria. But the southern kingdom was spared. They didn't go into uh, captivity during that time, mostly because of the influence of righteous men like Isaiah. Now, Judah experienced a spiritual revival under King Hezekiah, which you all may remember. He was influenced both by what happened to Israel up in the north and by the preaching of Isaiah. But all apparently was not as well as it may have seemed. There was a strong party in Jerusalem that was advocating an alliance with Egypt against the nation of Assyria. Assyria was the up-and-coming kingdom. Egypt was the... uh, uh, Long, long-running one. And so there was a, a clash there between two world powers. And there were those who wanted to have an alliance with Egypt and stand against Assyria that way. There was also those who wanted to go and join with Assyria. Now, Israel, Isaiah rejected the plan that, uh, that had been proposed as far as joining up with, with Egypt. He had uh, rejected the uh, Ahaz's plan to make an alliance with Assyria. If you remember that, he had a plan for, for that and he came to him and said, don't do it. But what about all the money we paid? Don't, uh, God can supply more money than that. And uh, you don't, don't worry about that at all. So his advice was to trust in the Lord. Uh, meanwhile, the Assyrians had a mutiny and Shamanasser was gone. In his place, there came a, a new king. His name was Sargon. His name actually means, translated, legitimate king. So that probably means that he was not. <laughs> if you have to put that in your name, I'm the legitimate king, then more than likely he was not the legitimate king. But uh, when Sargon defeated Egypt at the Battle of Raphia, Isaiah's advice to, to Judah was probably shown to be very correct. So Isaiah, Hezekiah died in 686, and they sought closer ties. Those who were around who were seeking closer ties with Assyria, and its gods came into power. And this is where Hezekiah's son Manasseh came about. Manasseh's son took over at 686 BC, um, yeah, 686 BC, and for nearly 60 years he and his son Ammon turned the people toward idolatry and wickedness. They left the law of God, they forgot it even existed, and the children even began to sacrifice to the god Molech, which required infant sacrifice. 
In Second Kings 21.16, it read, Moreover, Manasseh shed very innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. But in verse 6, just uh, 10 verses sooner, it says that he also made his own son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So the, own, his own, now the king himself caused his own son to pass through the fire and to die as a sacrifice to Moloch. Now Hezekiah had resisted the Assyrians and the, the band of people who wanted to join up with him. Manasseh uh, uh, decided to become a vassal of Assyria. He decided to adopt their gods and decided to adopt their assistance. In Second Chronicles 33, verse 10, it tells us that one, at one point the Assyrians took Manasseh captive to Babylon with hooks and bronze fetters. While he was there, he had a time of repentance. He repented to God and was released and returned a changed man. He tried to get rid of all the idols that he had set up, but the damage had already been done. The people's heart had been turned and he was not able to do it. One person, even common, one particular commentator even noted that he was trying to get rid of idols everywhere and may have had some success in some places, but had no success with his own son Ammon. And Ammon continued to pursue the gods of Assyria and lead Israel into this idolatry. Now, Ammon was Manasseh's son. He was also Hezekiah's grandson. He reigned two years and he brought back all of Manasseh's early worship, sins, whatever it was that he, that he did. He brought it all back. Whatever Manasseh was able to get rid of, Ammon brought it back. He ignored his own father's repentance and brought back all the idols and all the evil that he had done. So even though his father had come back and had uh, told his son about the repentance that, that he had undergone, he ignored all that and he continued to, to pursue this way. Now, how much of this was the influence of the people that were around them in the political atmosphere that was there to be steered to, to the Assyrians and the Assyrian gods, I don't know. We, we don't have a whole lot of information on that. It, we, it may not just have been Ammon himself. He may have had a lot of uh, what we would call it political pressure or people from the inside who were uh, bent on going in this direction and he may have even feared for his own life that if he had not gone in this direction, that that would, uh, that would be a problem. But again, I don't know that that was the case. I don't know that it wasn't. I just, I just know that from the Word of God, it tells us that Ammon continued to worship these gods. But when he finally came to power after Manasseh died, he only lasted two years. Then Josiah came. Josiah was the son of Ammon and the king of Judah. He was a king from 640 to 609 B.C. He was eight years old, you may remember, when his father was killed and he became king. And Ezekiel grew up during the reforms of Josiah. There was a copy of the law that was discovered by Hilkiah during the Josiah's renovations of the temple. How involved Ezekiel was in this finding, I don't know. We don't have, have any, uh, really any account of Ezekiel outside of the Bible account. So, not too much to, to help us with that. But he may have been, because he was a high up priest, he may very well have been involved in the group who was finding the, the law and may have even been one of the ones who first heard it or read it. But as Josiah read it and was determined to obey it fully, he, he had even dug up the bones of the idolatrous priest and burned them on the altars, altars to desecrate them. But the people were corrupt and they did not genuinely repent. We know that from Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 10 that said, And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. So the Mosaic Law that they had just uh, rediscovered said that the people would be taken captive and dispersed if they disobeyed the covenant. Now, Assyria was a dominant power in, in the um, Near East for about 250 years. That was while Josiah reigned. However, Assyria was too busy with its own problems to pay him any attention. They did bother the tribes of the north. And you remember they took them into captivity and dispersed them so that they were not heard from again. But they, they had too much going on. They weren't able to continue that and come on down to mess with Josiah much. <clears throat> there was a new power struggle that was beginning around this time. And when the king of Assyria, and I'll uh, pronounce his name for you, Ashur Banepal, A-S-H-U-R, B-A-N-I-P-A-L. 
He died in 626, and when he did, the empire erupted into chaos. That was the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, that was the Babylonian Empire before they became the empire, uh, under Nabopolassar, came into the existence the same year that he died. And Jeremiah began his ministry a year earlier. So a whole lot happened during this year when the king of Assyria died in 626. That was basically the year that uh, the Babylonian Empire began to form and Jeremiah had entered into his ministry a year earlier. Now another group of people that were around this time were the Scythians. The, the, the Scythians, they traveled in hordes. They left desolation in their wake and they appeared in the northeast around the 7th century from a region north of the Black Sea. There was the Medes and the Persians. The Medes migrated from what is now known as southern Russia about 1000 BC and they settled in the Iranian uh, plateau. The Persians also came from the same area, but they settled a little further south. Egypt, this is Pharaoh Necho, reigned from 609 to 594 BC and they had been a long and great power, but they were in decline. Now Babylon, under Nabopolassar, was king from 626 to 605. Don't worry about all these dates, just give it to you so you have an idea of uh, the, the time frame here. His son Nebuchadnezzar, now there's a name you all know, he reigned from 605 until 562. So Nebuchadnezzar is actually the second king of the Babylonian Empire. Nabopolassar defeated Assyria in battle in 612 BC and it was at this time that Nineveh, the Assyrian capital, fell to a coalition of nations including the Medes and the Babylonians. Now check this out. Two centuries after this battle, after Assyria fell, two centuries, that's 200 years, there was a Greek army that was passing that way and they asked what the large mound of earth was. It was all that was left of the city of Nineveh. And once great city that Jonah had prophesied about had fallen into nothing more than a dirt mound 200 years later. Now a remnant of the Assyrian army retreated to Haran. You all may remember that uh, little town. Now at the battle of Megiddo, this is where Necho of Egypt marched to the aid of Assyria in 609 B.C. Now you may say, well, I'm not that much of a history buff. I may not know about that. But you do know about this because this is when Josiah went out to battle with Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. And Pharaoh Necho of Egypt said, I am on an assignment from God. Get out of my way. And, Jer- and, and um, Josiah said, nope, I'm not going to do it. And he came on out and he had the battle in which he lost the battle and died. And the great reformer uh, had, had died and Necho continued on to um, uh, aid Assyria. Now, Egypt didn't like the Assyrians, but they, they didn't like the Babylonians even more. And so they decided to help the Assyrians because of their hatred for the Babylonians. <laughs> and so the idea was with Egypt and Assyria together, they could come against Babylon and um, and stop them. Now, he said he was on a mission from God, if you remember that. Now, we don't know if it was a mission from God in which God wanted him to be successful or if it was a mission from God in which God just wanted him to go and to uh, fail. <laughs> we don't, don't know. God sometimes would uh, send the non-God-fearing uh, nations out to do that. But anyway, Josiah's little little skirt there to go over into battle the king of Assyria slowed him or the king of Egypt slowed him down and this probably helped the uh, uh, Babylonians win the battle because they were not fighting both forces at the same time they fought the Assyrians first and then they were fighting the Egyptians the Egyptians got there later than they were they were trying to so Babylon defeated them both in the battle of Megiddo now you remember the, how many think that name sounds familiar, Megiddo? That is the battle of Armageddon, as we know it in the book of Revelation. This battlefield is a very uh, common one. You'll see many ancient times, and many times in the ancient world, there was a great battle here. Napoleon even had a great battle here. And this is going to be where the great battle will take place in the book of Revelation. Now, um, Jehoahaz, 
He was Josiah's second son, and he became king of Judah in 609 B.C. Now, you're going to hear all these names in the Bible when you read it, but you may not be able to piece things together here. Jehoahaz was his second son, not the first. Usually the first son is the one who takes the throne. There was a the party in Judah that wanted political independence, was able to pass by Jehoiakim, and instead put his younger brother Jehoahaz on the throne. So this, this particular group was the one who was instrumental in getting the second son put in, not the first one. After Necho was defeated by Babylon, he returned to Egypt and began to consolidate his power in Palestine and Syria. He invited Jehoahaz to his headquarters in Riblah, deposed him, and carried him off to Egypt, where he died after having been king only three months. In his place, Necho put Jehoiakim as vassal king in Judah. That was the one that was rejected by the group that was there. Now, Jehoiakim was Josiah's eldest son and was king of Judah from 609 to 597. He was known to be pro-Egyptian. So what you're seeing in here in the nation of Israel, and this is why I'm going through all this, this history for you to help with Ezekiel, is all the way up until here, you have one side that they're pro-Assyrian and another side that is pro-Egyptian. These are the two kingdoms that are there. These are the two uh, ruling uh, groups that were there. And one wants to side with the Assyrians and one wants to side with the Egyptians because they feel more security and more safety on one side than the other. So Jehoiakim was known to be pro-Egyptian, which is why Necho put him in charge. And the people of Judah knew what they were doing when they passed over him. And they put his younger brother in the, on the throne. The temple treasures had been removed and heavy tribute was being paid to Egypt. So this guy was so pro-Egypt, he took a lot of the money from Israel and sent it over to Egypt. And Jehoiakim built for himself a luxurious royal house with forced labor to make himself appear a successful ruler. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 22, 13 and 19. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read 15 to you. Shall you reign because you enclosed yourself in cedar? That was part of the prophecy. He thought if he had a big, good-looking house, people would see him as a successful ruler. So Jehoiakim was the king who cut and burned up the prophecies of Jeremiah. How do you remember that story? Jeremiah wrote down the prophecies, and as they were being read, he uh, had the uh, he would cut them off, and he would burn them. He also was the uh, the king mentioned in the opening verses of Daniel. Now Jeremiah's warnings. In the lifetime of Jeremiah, it spanned from the time of Josiah to the Babylonian exile. While Isaiah assured his generation that Assyria would not enter Jerusalem, Jeremiah warned that destruction from Babylon was imminent. So imagine that. You've got two prominent prophets. Isaiah is one. He's saying Assyria won't come into Jerusalem. It won't come into the, they, they won't come near here. And then I, uh, Jeremiah gets up after that and says, Babylon will. Now can you imagine if you were there on that day, and one prophet got up and said, Assyria will not come in. And then Jeremiah gets up and he says, Babylon will come in and, and destroy the city or exile the city and, and, and so forth. Could you see where your initial response might be? Well, that doesn't seem to be inconsistent with things we heard before. And they may not have, uh, have taken to it for that reason. All right. Um, Let's see, the writings of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they covered, uh, converged at many points. I think we talked about that last time. But neither one actually acknowledged the other one. More than likely, they did know about each other, but they don't acknowledge it in the writings of the, of the book. We then come to the Battle of Carchemish. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar led the armies of his father and attacked the combined Assyrian and Egyptian forces at Carchemish on the Euphrates River. This is one of the most important battles in history. Babylon won overwhelmingly. Assyria passed away forever. Egypt later aspired to power by never again, but, but never again rose to international significance. Now the first deportation to Babylon continued uh, after Babylon continued southward after con- their conquest of Carchemish. They invaded Judah. So when they had this big battle at Carchemish, they came down into Judah. And you maybe remember some of the stories from the Bible of the, the siege and the things that were going on. But then they, you know, they, uh, they left. But they took some of the people with them. This is the one that Daniel and his buddies, they went back on. And uh, Jehoiakim revolted. Jehoiakim is still the king, but instead of being a vassal to Egypt, he is now a reluctant vassal of Babylon. 
So he's, remember, he likes the Egyptians. But now he's a, he's a vassal of Babylon, so he's not very happy. And after three years of unwilling submission to Babylon, he revolted against Babylon in favor of Egypt. So if you wonder why does Jehoiakim uh, go against the prophets that were prophesying, don't rebel against Babylon. Don't do that. He didn't want to be submitted to Babylon. And his own self, he just didn't want to do it. He didn't like it. And so, eventually after three years, he had enough of it. He decided to revolt and go with Egypt. And the prophet, you remember, remember some of the prophecies that were made? Don't rely on Egypt. But they decided to rely on Egypt. And they had this, this treaty with Egypt. And it didn't work. And Babylon came down. And they, uh, they attacked him again. So uh, I made a note here. And in doing so, he ignored the warnings of Jeremiah. So Nebuchadnezzar retaliated against Judah in December of 598 B.C. And Jehoiakim died during that, the month that Babylon attacked. Apparently, he was assassinated. We don't know why he was assassinated. We don't know if the forces that were pro-somebody else decided to, that this guy who was pro-Egyptian, that uh, we needed to get rid of him. By that point, there may have been some pro-Babylonian forces in there. Uh, certainly, there was no more pro-Assyrian forces around. But maybe there were some who, who were more on the side of Babylon. Uh, who knows? But he was uh, apparently assassinated during that, that month that Babylon attacked. Jeremiah tells us that he received the burial of a donkey in Jeremiah twenty-two nineteen. <laughs> so apparently wasn't very, they didn't look very kindly on him. So Jehoiachin was 18 when his father died and he became king. He surrendered the city of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar three months after he became king. So they made him king and uh, he was he had that position for three months and then he surrendered the city. So that's not a whole lot of uh, great stuff going on for him. We had the second deportation. That was after the surrender of 597 B.C. Jehoiachin, his mother, his wives, his officials, and the leading men were all deported. Ezekiel was also deported. This is the one he was taken away in. His first message was in 592, five years after the second deportation. And Zedekiah, Josiah's youngest son, or Jehoiachin's uncle, he was the one who was put into... Uh, to, he wasn't put in as king, but he was put in to be a regent vassal. Now, he had this position from 597 until 586 B.C. And though he was in, in exile... Over in Babylon, Jehoiachin appears to have remained the recognized king of, of Judah. This was shown by some of the administrative documents that were, were around in Babylon. And Ezekiel provided dates based on the years of Jehoiachin's captivity. But Jehoiachin was well treated in Babylon. Clay tablets recorded the quality of oil that was, or quantity of oil that was delivered to, and I quote, Jehoiachinu, king of the land of Judah. That came out of the Babylonian uh, writings. At one point, he had a position that was above the throne of the kings that were in him at Babylon. That was in Second Kings chapter 25 and verse 28. So Zedekiah, on the other hand, was a miserable and pitiable figure. <clears throat> he had Jeremiah imprisoned, yet secretly sent for him and asked for him for advice. How many times do you remember that happened? Jeremiah 37, 16 was one of those times when that, that occurred. It was during Zedekiah's regency that Ezekiel from Babylon denounced the moral depravity of Judah and said that the glory of God would leave the temple. And then we had the second revolt. False prophets told Zedekiah that Nebuchadnezzar's power would soon be broken. They covered some of that last time. They also said that the exiles would soon uh, triumphantly return. Jeremiah 28, we read that with Hananiah and the false prophets that he had in two years. He said this was all going to be over. And Jeremiah said, it ain't going to be two years. It's going to be a lot longer than that. Uh, and the pharaohs that ruled after Necho in Egypt appeared to have uh, renewed strength. And so that gave them some uh, encouragement that maybe between them and Egypt, they could overthrow Babylon. So all this prompted Zedekiah to listen to the pro-Egyptian party and seek aid from the new Egyptian king, Hophra, in 589 B.C. in final rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar had begun. Now the patience of Nebuchadnezzar at this point it was, was worn thin. He was tired of, it, of all this rebellion that came from down there. So he laid siege to Jerusalem in 588 B.C. And uh, descriptions of the, siege, of the siege speak in 
the pestilence, the famine, and the cannibalism that had occurred in there. Eighteen months this had gone on, and despite some Egyptian help, the city was razed to the ground. The destruction of the city in 586 B.C., Zedekiah was captured, trying to flee, and he was blinded after witnessing the execution of his sons, and he was then led off to Babylon where he died. Then we had the third deportation. Many of the Jews were murdered by the Babylonians and others were deported to, to Babylon, but Judah uh, Jerusalem had fallen. Now, as, as this third deportation was taking place, we read of places in the Scripture that the Edomites watched with approval as the city was destroyed. If you remember the book of Obadiah, you can read Obadiah's uh, gives God's reaction to the Edomites for their uh, watching this and their their approval. Uh, Habakkuk also prophesied at this time describing the Babylonians as the rod of God's wrath. Now, Jeremiah was well treated by the Babylonians. They had known that he had been prophesying to them and telling them to surrender instead of being rebellious. And so he chose to stay in Judah with the governor, Gedaliah, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had appointed. Now, Ishmael, a royal relative, staged a revolt and killed Gedaliah. Many of the remaining Jews wanted to flee to Egypt. Do you remember that time? We, we covered it not too long ago on one of the Sunday morning services, I believe, where they came to, to, to uh, Jeremiah and they said, look, you, you tell us what we should do. You tell us the word of God and we'll go ahead and do it. And so he went away and after, uh, I believe it was 10 days, he came back to him and said, uh, the Lord says you should stay. They said, you're a liar. And they all went on down to Egypt and they carried him with them. So they rejected the prophecy. <clears throat> and Jeremiah delivered his final prophecy at Tophanes in Egypt. In 586, the word comes to Ezekiel that the city is smitten. There was a state of undue optimism that was dealt with the first third of Ezekiel, that the Jews switched to feelings of despair and dealt with that the last third of the book. Psalms 137 is what a psalm that deals with this particular time period. In verse 1, it says, By the rivers of Babylon... There we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. So if you write that verse of Scripture down, Psalm 137, you can think of uh, the context of, of what that is. All right, so that's some more of the history, some of the surrounding things that were going on during this time of Ezekiel. We might refer back to some of those as we're, we're going on through this. But in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month of the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chabar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of Chaldeans by the river Chabar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around, all around it, and radiant out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. I was going to try and get one of these videos for you to see, but how many have ever seen the, the videos that you can watch uh, on weather uh, weather sites? And you see off in the distance this huge towering mass of clouds. And in this, in that cl- mass of clouds is uh, lightnings. And you can, it looks like the whole thing is on fire. The fire and this and, and as you see this whole thing just lit up and lightning coming out from it, this is what he has seen. Something along this line. It's a storm, is what he's describing. And out of the midst of this storm is where the four living creatures come. Now notice the position that he, he speaks of this here. Coming out of the north, there was a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. And the brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. This comes out of the north. This is the same place that the threat for Jerusalem came from because the prophecies for for Jerusalem was that out of the north would come. And this is where the the people came who who destroyed them. Even Israel and the northern tribes, out of the north would come. Constantly the threat was coming out of the north. They kept looking to the south for comfort from Egypt. But the threat was constantly being prophesied out of the north. Out of the north Babylon came. Out of the north Assyria had come. All these things came out of the north. And now on this one, God is showing them that his presence is out of the north. Now, he is right, Ezekiel right now is north and east 
of the land of Israel. If you want to get there, you got to come around and come north. If I could show this to you in a map, but you actually had to go west and then down south. So if you were going to get from where he is to where they are, you would come out of the north to get down to um, to Jerusalem, to to uh, to Judah. That's what uh, the direction would be. But for them, the presence of God is where? Remember we were talking about this? The presence of God is in Jerusalem, which would be to the south. But here, we're going to have the presence of God coming out of the north. And this is before the fall of Jerusalem. This is while the temple is still there. What God is showing him by this, by this positioning here is that the glory of God came out of the north, not out of the south. If it had come out of the south, it had come from the area of, of Jerusalem, they would see it coming out of the temple. But it's not coming out of the temple. And that's why this that little throw-in part there, out of the north. That's why that has some significance for us. Verse 5, Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces. Now you may say, I don't know of anybody who has four faces. It's the likeness of a man. Not all the attributes of a man, it's in the likeness of a man. And also from within came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. Now legs being straight may simply mean that their knees were not bowed. It may mean something else as well. But a lot of times we see positions of people that they are bowed. These guys are not. They are in the presence of God and their legs are straight. They are standing up. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. It is not saying they were burnished bronze. It's saying that is their color. The hands of a man were under the wings, their, their wings on their four sides. And each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. Now, I've, if, if you go up online, you can see all kinds of people's depiction of these these things. I was going to go find one that I thought was the closest to how I envisioned it. Uh, and I, I didn't bring any of them over because I saw problems with each one of them. Each one of them was, well, you're not putting this part in. You're leaving this part out. And I don't really see how this is what is being described. So um, I, I just I just left it off. You can go up there and take a look at it. Maybe you find one that looks better. Sometimes they have them all four lined up together. Sometimes they have them in, in pairs, but then the wheels aren't in the right spot. And uh, it's just... They, each one of them seems to be off for, for some reason. But we have the description here. I don't know that it's super important that you have every bit of it down as to, to what, is, what is described here, what is, what is true. But... Um, we get the, the, at least a general idea of it here. So from within came four living creatures. They had the likeness of men. Each one had four faces. So what you're going to see with here is that we got four faces. <clears throat> One's facing one direction. One face faces the other direction. And one face faces the other two. I don't know if any of you guys can see it, but if you can get our group from the front of the church, that would be uh, probably helpful. Let's see the... Um, He's going to tell us a little bit about what the faces are here later on. But right now we just know that they have four faces. Their wings touched one another. Remember on the, on the Ark of the Covenant how the wings touched? That comes out from the, the, the throne of heaven. The wings were touching. So the wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. Now, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what this part of it means that they, they don't turn. But apparently, they do stay stationary, even though the entire thing may move. As it moves, they don't. So it seems like they're always facing in the same direction. And as the the whole uh, glory of God, the throne and everything that is there, as it moves, they, they stay still. Almost um, uh, independent of everything else that is there. It would, it would almost seem to be something of, along those lines. So, again, he's trying to describe something that maybe we just don't have words to describe. 
So they always face the same direction. In um, verse 10, As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each had the each of the four had the face of a lion. Each on the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. Each of the four had the face of an eagle. So we have four faces that are depicted here. A man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. If you look at the twelve tribes of Israel, Judah, their standard was a lion. And they were they were east of the whenever they had to camp. Judah was on the east. If you look up here at this verse, as for the likeness of the faces, each man had the face of a man, the face of a lion on the right side. So that would put the right side on the east side. More than likely. And it seems like it goes right in line with what God has here for the 12 tribes. Reuben was a stand, standard was that of a man. He was on the south. Ephraim, his standard was an ox. That was on the west. And Dan, his standard was that of an eagle. And he was on the north. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in one end of the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in the front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The seventh living creature like a calf. The third living creature, now a calf would also be an ox to the young one. The third living creature had the face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. So again, we see the same, same depictions there. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now there, the, the first living creature was like a lion. So the entire creature was of, of such. But again, we have the same four things depicted there. Now another place we see four is we have four Gospels. And each time that people try and de- depict the four Gospels as having uh, themes, and they seem to also go along with these same pictures that were here. I looked up some of these themes, and I'll tell you what, people are just all over the place as to what their reasonings are. But um, uh, we'll, just, we'll just leave it this way that the, the four Gospels are probably represented in the four living creatures and in these four faces that we have here. So, uh, verse 11, Thus were their faces, their wings stretched upward, two wings of each one touched one another, and two covered their bodies. And each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and it did not turn when they went. So they each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit the Spirit of God, wherever the Spirit of God wanted to go, that the whole thing would move that direction. But they wouldn't turn. They stayed the same. And as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. And the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. Now, it's a pretty spectacular picture he paints here. It says their appearance was like burning coals of fire. And um, I don't know what that is. I don't know what exactly that would be like. But that's the closest thing he could get. Of all the things that we have here on earth, that was the closest thing he could get. Like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the, li- the living creatures. The fire was, was bright and out of the fire went lightning. And the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. So again, the whole thing was a whirlwind that came out of the north. And then this vision came out from it. And it would seem that the, that the uh, living creatures that were there, the four living creatures and their wings, that their wings provided protection. That in the midst of all that turmoil, all those, all that stuff going on, in the midst of all that, the holiness of God, the presence of God was just right there, not affected by it at all. These four living creatures, they just stood all around and the wings were put up. They touched each other. And so none of the turmoil that was going on in this storm could affect 
the presence of God. And in this first vision that we have here, none of the turmoil that Israel was going through would affect the presence of God. Because Israel was going to be looking at this and, and eventually during his ministry, during his time of prophesying, the temple was going to be destroyed. The city was going to be torn, torn apart. The wall was going to come down. But God is saying this, in the midst of a great storm, my presence is not affected. We can, we can take comfort in that even today. No matter what the political things that are going on, no matter what evil we see going on in the world, no matter what it is that the, that the governments want to legalize and, and, um, and impose, Glory to God. The, glo- the, the glory of God is not affected by all the storms and all the things that go on with people. Verse 15, Now as, as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of beryl, and all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. And when they moved, they went toward any one of the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. As for their rims, they were so high, they were awesome. And their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went because there the Spirit went and the wheels lifted together with them. For the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels." When those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. There are uh, quite a few different depictions of this. Some people paint the wheel as in one wheel going one direction and the other wheel going directly opposite of it. And the, the second wheel being inside. Other ones have the wheels going in this, the same direction, and some of them have the wheels on top of each other, not actually in each other. And I don't know which one to tell you is, is right. Uh, any one of them can be right, but you've got the wheels. There's multiple wheels, and the wheels are the same. And the wheels would go, whenever the Spirit of God wanted to go and the four living creatures moved, the wheels went with it. So I, I don't know that the wheels were causing the thing to move or that the wheels would rotate and that would, uh, you know, like a car, the wheels would rotate as you move. I don't know that there's any rotation in that, but the, the wheels were there. And let me see where... In verse um, uh, 22... The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures were like, like the color of awesome crystals stretched out over their heads. So the likeness of the firmament. We, this is the exact same word we see in, in um, Genesis when it talks about the firmament. This is up in, this, up in the sky. The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. I don't know how to descri- I don't know how you paint that, but that's the best thing he could come up with to describe it. In verse 23, and under the firmament, their wings spread out straight one toward another. Each one had, had two which covered one side and each one had two which covered the other side of the body. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. A voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Wherever they stood, they let down their wings. So if, if you, you read this and you look at some of the drawings that are out there, you may, want, may understand the difficulty they would have trying to put this into a, to a picture so we could, we could visualize it because you could go a number of different ways in drawing this thing. Uh, verse 26, And above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne. 
it appearance like a sapphire stone, and the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Now here we have the mention of the throne. Do you know that the very first mention of a throne for God is in First Kings chapter twenty two and verse nineteen? When I read this verse of scripture, it will all come become very clear to you. Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by, on his right hand and on his left. Now think about this with Micaiah. You remember the story when he had come before the king and they said, Prophesy good things. He said, I'll just prophesy what the what God says, and he says, Go prosper and be blessed. And Ahab says, How many times have I tell you? You know, only tell me the word of the Lord. <laughs> and Jehoshaphat is there. And so he, his whole countenance, it seems like it changed. And he said, this verse. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. First Kings, First Kings 22 and verse 19. I didn't put that in your outline? Yeah, it's in there. Okay. I thought I got that one in. I wanted, I wanted you to be able to look that up if you want to. First Kings 22. The whole chapter is good, but 19 is where I, I quoted from. Now imagine this. You are in the audience and a prophet of God stood up. And for the very first time, you hear mention the throne of God. Can you imagine that? All this time in Israel's history, all the time of Moses, all the time of of, uh, Adam, all this time, Abraham, and there's no mention of anyone seeing the throne of God. And then all of a sudden, this prophet that no one had ever heard of before, at least not in Scripture, they apparently had heard of him, he stood up and he gave this word. Can you imagine the shock that he has of seeing this for the first time? Because this is revelation. I've seen the throne of God. Maybe people assumed he had a throne but it was never stated. And here we have the throne of God in 1 Kings 22 and verse 19. In Psalm chapter 9, verse 4, For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. Verse 7, But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared His throne for judgment. Chapter 11, verse 4, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Your throne, O God, is forever. And ever a scepter of righteousness and the scepter of your kingdom. There we have mention of these in the Psalms. In Isaiah 6 1, very familiar scripture to you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And so Isaiah becomes the second one to see, at least that's written, to see the throne. Psalms talks about it. But these prophets say they saw it. They saw God on it. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now as Ezekiel, let's go back over there, verse 26. And, that, and above the firmament over the heads was a likeness of a throne in appearance like the sapphire stone or in the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw as it were the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it and from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw as it were the appearance of fire with brightness all around like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloudy in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. The neat part about this particular verse is, you know, we've had some debates about this before. What color is God? And it tells us right here what color he is. He is the color of fire. You want to know what color God is? God is the color of fire. How awesome is it to be looking upon God on His throne and He is the color 
of fire. What we see from this first chapter here and from his vision that he has is that God is more awesome, he is more majestic, and he is more holy than any of us can imagine. And human language could never fully describe his greatness. God is so awesome. As awesome as you think God is, He's more awesome. And as majestic as you think heaven is and His throne room is, He is even more majestic. And when you finally get a chance to see God in all His glory, language will fail you. You will not be able to describe the awesomeness of our God, the glory of heaven, it will all escape you. What an awesome God we serve. In the days of Ezekiel, in the days of Jeremiah, there's a lot of gloom. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of things going on in the world around them. And eventually, it's going to come to the point that their city, their beloved city is destroyed and the temple is destroyed. But God is more awesome than their city, more majestic than their temple. And even though man has done all these terrible things to them, even though there's a storm brewing all around, God's majesty is great. It is not deterred by any storm and His majesty can come right out of the midst of the most violent of storms you've ever seen and not be affected one bit. No matter what goes down here on this earth, no matter what happens with political parties, with elections, with nations, with wars, no matter what goes on, God's majesty, His glory, is unaffected. We serve a great God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the depiction of the awesomeness of our God we have here in Ezekiel. And I know he is greatly restricted by the language that he has in describing all that he sees. But how awesome is our God. I thank you, Father, for the greatness that you are and how unaffected you are by all the things that go on here on the earth. I thank you for it and give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name.